it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Now, for some of you, perhaps you've only recently come to hear the end of this book in 1 Corinthians. For others of you, you've been here for the whole ride. So just a little bit of a recap. We began this book June 7th, 2020. That's two years and six weeks minus the small handful of other sermons that we have preached on other topics. We've heard 80 messages uh, from this book. If you were to average 25 hours of study time per message, that's 2,000 hours of study just on this book alone. And that's 80 hours of you listening to this book. Why? Why do we give so much attention to this book? Subsequently, the other elders And myself, we've been praying and debating for weeks now behind closed doors over which book we should preach next. Why do we do that? Because as Moses said, this is no empty word for you, but your very life. Be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 12, 28. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Joshua 1, 8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Romans 2, 8 and 9. Beloved, that's why we give so much attention to this book, because it instructs us in the way of life and the way of everlasting life. Eternal life cannot be found in any other human word. As Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Therefore, to obey this word brings eternal life, but to disobey it brings eternal and everlasting judgment. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes on him who has sent me has passed from death into life. He will not come into judgment, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So that's what this book holds out to us. Death and life. Everlasting joy or everlasting misery. Now as Paul concludes this letter to the Corinthians, that's precisely the urgency that he concludes with. These are not just words of a postscript, a PS. 
to the to the meat of the book these concluding words are the meat of the book these are holy in spirit a holy spirit inspired words that Paul wrote down to remind us of the most important things these words are a summary of the whole they're his final instructions and grace so let's look at that now there's no big idea today just four points we're going to see a command in verses 15 through 28, a greeting in verses 19 through 21, a warning in verse 22, and a great blessing in verses 23 and 24. So let's look first of all at this command. Please look with me at verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers... You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. They have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So what do we know about this man named Stephanus? We were introduced to him at the beginning of the book in chapter 1, verse 16, when Paul said that he baptized the house of Stephanus. Now, I actually believe that this man was one of the pastors of the Corinthian church. And I have several reasons for this. First of all, Paul says that Stephanus was the first convert, literally first fruits in Achaia. Achaia was the country and Corinth was the city that it was found in. Stephanus was the first fruits, the aparche, meaning that when Christ saved him, he was a pledge, he was a promise of a greater harvest to come in the city of Corinth. And the Corinthians were part of that spiritual harvest that was started in Stephanus. Secondly, upon Stephanus' conversion, verse 15 says that he devoted himself. The KJV says that he addicted himself. To the service of the saints. He addicted himself not to money or to drink or to sex, but to serving the church. And that word service is the word diakonia, where we get the word deacon. Diakonia uh, is not only used of servants in general or even of, of deacons in particular, but it's also used of pastors. Uh, Paul, an apostle, a pastor, called himself a deacon in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. He says, what is Paul? A servant, a diakonos, through whom you believed. Likewise, Stephanus was a deacon who was absolutely addicted to serving the church. And then thirdly, the third reason why I think Stephanus was the, one of their pastors, because in verse 16, Paul tells the Corinthians, be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. Paul says, submit to him. And then he says again at the, verse, at the end of verse 18, give recognition to such men. Now, there's that combination of those two commands uh, elsewhere in the New Testament, those are used to uh, specifically uh, recognize pastors in the local church. In First um, Thessalonians five twelve through thirteen, Paul says, "We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, their overseers, and admonish you." 
to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And then perhaps the more famous one, Hebrews 13, 17, the author says, obey your leaders and submit to them. So that's what Paul is admonishing the Corinthians to do here. Submit to this man, Stephanus, because he's addicted to serving you. It seems that at least he was one of their pastors, perhaps along with these other two men, Fortunatus and Achaicus. Now note the urgency of this command. He doesn't just say it, he puts urgency behind it. In verse 15, he begins with, now I urge you to do this. I urge you to submit. Why this urgency? Well, because the Corinthians in particular had an anti-authority spirit in their midst. Recall just a few verses back in verse 10, Paul had to admonish them not to despise the authority of Timothy. And much of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians deals with this issue of the Corinthians rejecting apostolic authority. So in his last words here, he urges the church to not do this, to submit. Why is this so vital? Why is pastoral work so vital to be submitted to? Well, beloved, because uh, uh, pastoral work is a continuation of apostolic work, not in a Roman Catholic way, but in the way that just as the apostles faithfully delivered the word of the Lord, so faithful pastors do the same. Uh, Faithful pastors preach and deliver and apply the word of the Lord just as the apostles did. They teach the word, they rebuke with the word, they correct with the word, they train God's people in the word for righteousness sake. And they're addicted to this work. So it's an urgent thing to submit to their office. And so we arrive now at our first principle this morning. God gave us Faithful pastors to watch over our souls. God gave us faithful pastors to watch over our souls. Hebrews 13, 17, that's the end of it. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your soul. Children, boys and girls, When an ancient city was in danger of being attacked, they would post a watchman up on the wall. And that watchman would stay awake all night while everybody was sleeping to to watch and see when an attack was coming. And if an attack was coming, they would sound the trumpet and the people of the city would know that it was time for them to, to, to bear arms, to get up, to shake themselves of sleep and to go to the fight. Now, what do you suppose about the man who is in his bed and he hears the trumpet sound and he says to himself, ah, that's just the watchman. What does he know? Would he be foolish or wise? He would be exceedingly foolish. And it might cost him his life 
because he failed to yield to the sound that the watchman was giving him. Children, God gave you pastors to watch over your soul. To ignore their ministry is to put your life in danger. So let's apply this first point. First, consider who you are rebelling against if you do not submit, as Paul tells us here. Who are you rebelling against? The great Baptist pastor, Andrew Fuller, said this in 1802. He says, quote, If your pastor teaches any other doctrine or inculcated any other duties than what Christ has left on record, then obey him not. But if he urges the things of Christ, it is to your peril to resist him. For in resisting him, you resist him who sent him. Romans 13.2, Paul says, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. God told Samuel when the people of Israel rejected him as prophet, he said, they have not rejected you, they have rejected me. 1 Samuel 8.7. So let's examine ourselves, loved ones. Do you realize that if you do not subject yourself to, to your pastors, you're, you're resisting the Lord? This is one of the reasons why church membership is, is so important. It's so vital because it's a formal public recognition of God's command that, that members will submit to uh, and obey their pastors and then pastors will watch over their souls. So dear congregation, just ask yourself, are you taking to heart? Are you taking to heart what the Lord is teaching you through your pastors? How do we submit to them? How do we do this? Well, we submit in two primary ways. First of all, we ought to submit to the pulpit. We ought to submit to the pulpit. You realize that unfaithful pulpits... They tickle itching ears. They only preach messages which please the flesh. It's, it's better to have no pastor at all to have, than to have a pastor who is aiming at pleasing your flesh. And so what that means is that you have to be willing to have the pulpit prick your conscience. You have to be willing to have the pulpit offend you. Andrew Fuller again says here, I hope the house of God will continue to be to you a rest in times of trouble, a house of consolation. But do not go with a desire merely to be comforted. Go as well to learn your failings and defects and in the hope of having them corrected. Beloved, I exhort you in the name of Christ, come Sunday morning with your heart ready to be corrected and then be willing and ready to bring forth fruits of repentance. Don't live a double life. You may as well not come to preaching at all if you do not plan to be transformed by it. You might as well stay home. Secondly, we ought to uh, submit to their private discipling. 
We ought to submit to their private discipling. If your pastors come to you, or if you come to your pastors, then don't dismiss their care for you. Um, be vulnerable rather than defensive. Be transparent rather than closed off. Uh, share your sins with them. Share your struggles with them. Share your fears with them. And then be, re- be ready to receive their instruction and their correction and their rebuke. The Lord has given these men to you as precious gifts, as watchmen on the wall who will blow the trumpet when danger is near. And then let's also apply this for our comfort. Paul says in verse 17, I rejoice I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. I rejoice at them. Beloved, God gave you pastors to make your heart rejoice. God gave you doctors to make your body happy. And he gave you pastors to make your soul happy. How do pastors do this? Well, look at verse 18. Paul says, For they refresh my spirit as well as yours. You know, that's the same word that Jesus uses when he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The same refreshment that Jesus brings is the refreshment that pastors bring. Why? Because it's pastors who are offering that Christ to you. Christ is the honey that drops off their lips. Christ is the ointment that they apply to our wounds. Christ is the light that they shine in our darkness. He's the bread that they feed our hungry souls with. He's Christ. He's the hope that that they whisper to us when all seems lost. So that's our first point at the conclusion of Paul's letter. Be subject to your pastors because God gave them to you to watch over your souls. Let's look secondly at a greeting. In verses 19 through 21, Paul If you just notice what he repeats, he repeats the the same word five times. It's podsomai. It's translated greeting or greet. He says, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. As podsomai. Now, this is not something that American culture is, is very familiar with. This type of greeting is not a, a mere slight gesture or, or just a few words. Uh, as podsomai is an embracing, it's a, it's a kissing, it's, it's not a hurried event, it's a deliberate, affectionate event. So, so when Elisha uh, sent his servant to heal the, the Shunammite's uh, son, he, uh, 
he, he told him in haste, he said, tie up your garment, take your staff uh, in your hand. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply. His business was too vital to be delayed by this type of affectionate, long greeting. Likewise, when Jesus sent out the 72 in haste to preach the gospel, he told them, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road, Luke 10, 4. His, his, his gospel was urgently to be preached, and it couldn't be delayed by this type of greeting. That's podsomai. But here at the end of this letter, Paul delays his conclusion by mentioning this greeting five times. And this certainly would have deeply convicted the Corinthians. They were factious and divisive. They couldn't even get along with each other, let alone people outside of their church. And yet here are brothers and sisters spread across the Roman Empire. These churches in Asia, those are the seven churches in the book of Revelation. They're from different ethnicities, different skin colors, different economic classes, Christians that they have never met, sending their deep affection to the Corinthians in Paul's letter. Well, maybe they just didn't know how bad these Corinthians were. No. Aquila and Prissa lived in Corinth. They would have known. They, they only moved to Ephesus when Paul went there. Not, not to mention the fact that these letters, just like we're reading them now, the early church read the circulated letters of the apostles. In Colossians 4.16, he says, When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So just as we are reading this letter now, certainly the early church were very aware of what was going on in Corinth. And yet, and yet, they, they send their warmest affections and greetings and love to this Corinthian church. And so we arrive at our, our second principle this morning. Christians share... A supernatural affection unlike anything in this world. Not talking about love, strictly speaking. Paul addressed that last week. Rather, I mean those intimate affections. Those, um, it's embracing. It's brotherly and sisterly um, touches. It's hugs. It's handshakes. God made human beings to need touch. We need it. I was reading an article, interesting article on WebMD called Touch Starvation, What to Know. The author wrote this, Touch starvation can happen with any lack of physical touch, such as children in orphanages and elderly people in hospitals who don't get enough positive contact. Human touch is a huge part of how we interact with others. We shake our coworkers' hands, hug our loved ones, and high-five our friends. We bond through physical touch. We bond through physical touch. When we don't 
When you don't get enough physical touch, you can become stressed, anxious, or depressed. End quote. And this is true of all human beings, Christian or no. But Christians in particular share a a type of human touch that is unlike anything in this world. We share the osculum passis, the kiss of peace. Unbelievers can embrace each other all day long. They can wish each other goodwill. And and I'm not denying that, but when Christians embrace, a deeper reality is experienced. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. Ephesians 2, 13 and 14. We embrace because we have peace with each other, because we have peace with God. We embrace because we are the one body of Christ in union with one another and because of our union to Christ Jesus. Now this brotherly affection is only hindered when we're full of ourselves. That was the problem in Corinth. Paul tells them in verse 20 after he says, look at all these people are greeting you and now I'm going to give you this command, verse 20, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now it's called holy to distinguish it from being carnal or worldly or impure. The the kiss itself was a a convention of culture. The kiss is not what is the focus here. Paul was commanding them to reestablish their affection for one another. That's at the heart of this command. A holy affection for one another expressed in human touch. A hug, a hand on the shoulder, an embrace. Beloved, don't you know that this is how Jesus was with, with his disciples? In the upper room, what do we read John doing? He's leaning back on the Savior's chest. Savior doesn't push him away. He embraces it. He welcomes it. And so I exhort you, loved ones, show holy affection one to another. Embrace one another with the holy joy because you have been reconciled to God and therefore you are reconciled to each other. You are one. I mean, this affection itself is a powerful evidence of the truth of the gospel. I I regularly meet with a brother here at the church and he has told me on a number of occasions the reason why he became a member at this church wasn't because we were reformed. It wasn't because we have all of our theological ducks in a row. It was because he was loved and hugged and embraced and brought into the family. He's told me it on a number of times. That's what Jesus says, isn't it? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you lo- have love for one another. He was given a holy kiss and it brought him into the church. 
That's our second point at the conclusion of this letter. Don't let self-love hinder the supernatural love that we owe each other and every other Christian. So let's look thirdly at a warning. Paul says in verse 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. Why did Paul write these words to a church? He's not writing these words to unbelievers outside of the congregation, though it certainly would apply to them, nor, nor is he condemning all the, the, the Corinthians inside the Corinthian church. He clearly believes that the church is filled with true saints. But he is writing to those who are in the church, church membership, those who are pretenders, those who are hypocrites, those who have an outward profession of faith, but on the inside do not love Christ. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. They were, they were pretenders. And, and here's the lesson for us is that there are pretenders in every single church. Jesus said in Matthew 13 that the wheat and tares will grow together until the harvest. It's an exceedingly frightful thing to me that members would come to church week after week, hear the word, sing the word, partake of the word and the sacraments and not truly love Christ It's a truly frightening thing. Paul says, let them be accursed. Let them be damned. Let them be devoted to destruction. And then he says here, our Lord come. Meaning he's calling on Christ to come and judge those who mock him. John MacArthur says here, Paul's appeal is for the Lord to come and take away those who are accursed, those nominal false Christians who are always such a great threat to the true church. The idea is God come and remove them before they do more harm. So we arrive at our third principle this morning. That those who do not love the Lord are enemies of God, of mankind, and of themselves. Let's just take those one at a time. Those who do not love the Lord Jesus are enemies of God. Jesus said, if, you, if God were your father, you would, you would love me. John eight forty two. He also said, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the Father who sent him. John 5, 23. Anyone who does not love Jesus is necessarily an enemy of God. But secondly, those who do not love the Lord Jesus are also enemies of mankind. Someone might say, wait a second, non-Christians can love each other. We see non-Christians love each other all the time. But, but not in the fullest sense. Uh, 
Unbelievers might wish each other well. They might show compassion to one another. They might not want any harm to come to others. But since they have no love for Christ, they can't bid others to come to Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Non-Christians necessarily work against the salvation that Christ offers, and therefore they are enemies of mankind. And then thirdly, those who do not love the Lord Jesus are enemies of themselves. They're enemies of themselves. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those who refuse that offer have become enemies of their own soul. The Proverbs say, he who fails to find me injures himself and all who hate me love death. The law requires that we love God, that we love mankind, that we love ourselves. And those who do not love Jesus are enemies of all these things. And therefore, they're the most hateful type of being. And that's why Paul calls them accursed. So let me plead with you, dear friend, if I'm obviously not talking to everybody right now. But if that's you, if that's you, if if you're hiding in the church, if you're pretending to be a Christian, if you're putting on this Christian front, it can't save you. God, God ponders the way of man. He can see precisely where your enmity with Christ is. The warning from the Apostle Paul is so clear. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Dear friend, why do you think that Paul reserved these words for last? Why does he conclude with these words? So that they would ring in our ears in hopes that you would repent and turn to Christ if if you're living a life that is outside of Christ. So this warning is actually an invitation. It's a shot across the bow, and then it's open arms to come to Christ. Consider how lovely this Christ is for those who hope in him. Consider, just stop and listen. Consider how lovely this Jesus is. Christ is lovely. In his union of God and man. Jesus put on flesh, not for his own sake, but so that he could be God with us. Emmanuel, the prince of heaven, came down. He left the riches of heaven and became poor for our sake. Christ is lovely in his obedience. As a man, the scripture says that Christ had to learn obedience. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Christ was lovely in his death. 
death being lovely? Oh, yes, there was never a death that was more lovely than the death of the Savior. When he cried, it is finished, he carried all of our sins into the land of forgetfulness. Christ was lovely in his resurrection. No man ever raised himself, but Christ raised himself. He said, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. He was delivered for our trespasses and raised again for our justification. Christ is lovely right now in his session in heaven as he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. He now ever lives to intercede for us. And Christ is exceedingly lovely in his pardon for sinners. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He's the best friend that a sinner could ever have. He's the one mediator between God and man. So why would you perish if that is you this morning? Why would you not love this Savior? Why would you be willing to be accursed? I plead with you, don't hide in the church. Don't pretend to be a Christian. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Throw yourself at his mercy. Call on the Lamb of God who was slain for sinners before he becomes the lion and devours you in judgment. That's our third point at the conclusion of this letter. Those who do not love the Lord are enemies of God, of mankind, and of themselves. And therefore, they will be accursed if they do not repent. Let's look finally at a blessing. The warning is not where Paul ends. He ends with the most gracious words that you could possibly imagine. He ends with a benediction. Look at verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. By wishing this grace upon us, Paul is telling us something about ourselves and he's telling us something about Christ. Regarding ourselves, Paul is telling us that above everything else, above food and water and air, we need the grace of Jesus Christ. By nature, we are sinners and and we could never do anything to please God. Left to ourselves, we don't even desire to please God. Romans 8, 7 and 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so when Paul is wishing grace upon us in this second to last verse, he's telling us that, well, this is what's true about you. By yourself, you're in the most desperate of all conditions. But Paul is also telling us something about Christ. When Paul wishes the grace of the Lord Jesus upon us, he doesn't do so in an uncertain way. Like a child might say, I I wish it's nice today so that I can go swimming. No. 
This is a benediction. It's a, it's a proclamation. It's a certain word of grace. Paul says these words with full expectation that Christ's people will receive the grace that they need. This is not common grace. This is saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the undeserved love that Christ has for his people. And when Paul gives us this benediction, he's telling us that Christ will most certainly, most assuredly, verily, verily bring this grace to pass for all of his people. Without a doubt, God could cease to be God in the heavens before God could fail to give grace to those who are in Christ Jesus And I am sure of this, that he who began a work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. How does that happen? It happens by the grace of the Lord Jesus be upon you. And so we arrive at our fourth principle this morning, that grace is the beginning and the middle and the end of the Christian life. It's the alpha and the omega of the Christian life. And children, boys and girls, I actually think that this is a very easy concept for you to get. It's not abstract at all. Do you remember when the Lord Jesus was with his disciples at the Sea of Galilee? And there was thousands of people listening to Jesus' teaching, 5,000 men, not counting women and children. And they were hungry. Now, real quick, 5,000 people, that's like 25 of our churches combined. And they needed food because if they traveled back to their home, they would faint along the way. And so the disciples brought along this little boy who had five loaves of bread and two fish. And of course, five loaves of bread and two fish wouldn't even feed this church, let alone 25 of them. But what does Jesus do? Thank you for this bread, Father. He breaks it. He distributes it. And he miraculously fed 5,000 with the crumbs of those five loaves and two fish. Now, children, that meal represents the grace of Christ that we receive when we're born again. That he fully satisfies us, that he fills us, that he strengthens us, that he brings us to spiritual life. But Jesus wasn't done with that miracle. The miracle continues. After everyone was full, the disciples gathered up 12 baskets of leftovers. That is not some small detail. What do you suppose those 12 baskets of leftovers represent? They represent the grace of Christ that we need for the rest of our life. We don't exhaust the grace of Christ at the beginning of our life. He gives us bread all the way home. That's who Jesus Christ is. He never stops giving. He's not stingy. He's generous. That's the blessing at the end of this book, loved ones. Just as Christ fed us undeserved love, saving us from our sin. At the beginning of this book, he says, to those saints who are in Corinth, grace to you, peace to you. Now he bookends it and by saying, you know what? 
grace to you. It's never going to stop. His good pleasure is enough grace to get us all the way home to glory. And then Paul says, as if that's not enough, he he ends with one more verse of powerful gospel grace. He says in verse 24, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. That's amazing. After all they've done, Paul would still love them with their exceeding factious and divisive parties with their arrogance, with their prostitution, with their unloving nature. They didn't deserve any of the apostles' love. And yet he says, my love be with you all. Why? How can Paul love them? Verse 24, because they are in Christ Jesus. They have union with Christ. Paul has union with Christ. They are one. So let me remind you of two vital truths that we learned at the beginning of this book, namely our position and our condition. Imagine a 10-year-old little boy. What is his position in relationship to his dad. He's a beloved son. The father would would do anything for him. He would provide for him. He would protect him. He would love him because he's his son. He didn't, the son didn't make himself a son. He was born a son. That's his position. But what about his condition? Well, the boy has leukemia. He's in an ICU in the hospital. He might not make it. Does his sick condition change his position as his father's son? No. In fact, because he is sick, the bowels of his father's love are actually drawn more out to him. The critical nature of his condition makes the father more lovesick for the son. Beloved, These Corinthians were sick. They were really, really sick. They were in the spiritual ICU. And Paul has, through this book, faithfully dealt with their spiritual condition. He's given them the medicine of rebuke and correction. And he's done it over and over and over again. However, at the end of this book, he wants them to be reminded of their position in Christ. They are still Loved. Paul still loves them because Christ still loves them. And that's what Christ would have you know this morning. If you are in him, if you've been born again by the Spirit on high, if you have trusted in Christ, then here is one truth about you. You still sin. You still blow it. And you need to be rebuked for that. And you need to be corrected for that. And you need to be brought to repentance for that. But hear this truth in addition. That though you sin against him, he loves you still. That's your position, loved ones. That that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
And that's how the book ends. That's how 1 Corinthians 1 ends. Grace and love. Why does it end like that? Because that's how your life will end if you're in Christ. Grace and love. Grace to get you all the way home. And then an everlasting feast of love as you are brought into the presence of God and his Christ. Let's pray.